0: Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the Mystical Underground.
1: Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And and Rob McGregor. And our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular blog posts and where you can find out about our books our most recent nonfiction book, Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities, Trisha's latest novel is Skin Shifters, and Rob's latest novel is Tulipus. And pretty soon, we're going to have a new nonfiction book, The Shift, reports from the mystical underground. Yes.
2: Okay. Our guest today is Rick Batua, who served 32 years in the U.S. Navy as a diver. and He finished his career in 2008 as a Command Master Chief Petty Officer and Master Diver then returned for another three-year stint as an advisor, retiring in 2011. In October 2004, Rick became the Navy's Command Master Chief of Salvage Diving, and in that role, he managed the world's largest and most diverse diving command with more than 250 personnel operating throughout the Pacific and Indian Oceans, as well as in Iraq and Kuwait. I should add that Rick has written a book called Breathe, which is about Rick's survival story, or actually many survival stories throughout his uh, career and afterwards. And I should mention also that I edited Rick's book, so I'm quite familiar with his story. And after uh, Rick retired, he moved to Queensland, Australia, where he is married and has two children. Welcome, Rick. Oh,
3: thank you very much for having me.
2: Yeah. Okay. One other thing I want to mention is that uh, if our listeners are thinking that this introduction doesn't sound like a typical Mr. <laughs> mystical underground interview that that explores the paranormal and mysteries of the unknown, you would be wrong. Rick's story is not without some mind-blowing synchronicities and more. So let's get started. Uh, Rick, when uh, we tell people about you, they typically ask, "Well," Is he a Navy SEAL? Can you explain the difference between being a Navy diver and a SEAL?
3: Uh, sure. Um, two different jobs altogether. So uh, uh, Navy divers, we're the divers that work underwater, and our mission lies underwater. Whereas a Navy SEAL, they have no missions in which they accomplish underwater. They actually use the ocean as transportation to get them from point A to point B so they can get out of the water and do their mission. The same as if you would uh, um, jumping out of a plane and parachute. They're going from point A, that's the, uh, the plane, to the ground so that they can conduct their mission. But uh, if it's a mission underwater, a salvage operation, or any operation or work to be done underwater, it's Navy divers that are doing it. Well, I didn't know that difference. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah
2: yeah the steels are more of the fighters too right rick than the salvagers
3: that's correct i mean some people over here they would call them commandos but you know basically their job is reconnaissance and uh, and of course direct any direct action mission on land uh whereas a navy diver's job all of our jobs uh, are, are under the ocean
1: hmm Okay, we want to start telling you about a couple of your extraordinary diving experiences in the Navy. Uh, you were involved in changing the propeller on a ship while the ship was in the water when a giant nut that would hold the propeller in place fell off and was buried deep in mud. Uh, can you take it from there and tell us what happened?
3: Well um, depending on uh, it doesn't really matter uh, the size of a boat or a ship all propellers are held in place by a nut Uh, on a ship. We call it a boss nut. In this Hmm. particular case, this boss nut would have been five feet in diameter and weighed as much as a Toyota Corolla, for instance. Uh, So it's a very large nut. (laughs) And uh, the divers that were in the water, when they removed that nut, there's a device called a boss nut catcher. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, they had a failure to communicate with it, and the nut fell off the ship. And uh, um, and hit the mud some fifty feet below, and wow. uh, this is quite a big deal because, as you can imagine, you just can't run down to the hardware store and buy a nut. <laughs> so we needed to uh, to find it. Now I've been this this occurred in Charleston, South Carolina, in a river called the Cooper River. And the Cooper River is notorious for um, really swift currents and brown, muddy water, much like the Mississippi, and. Um, about 10 feet from the wall from the bottom the bottom becomes like soup and it's thicker Mm. thicker water if you will and then the bottom is very very muddy um so this particular mud uh nut fell off and uh, obviously went into the mud some depth so we needed to find a way to go down to the bottom 50 feet below and then tunnel into the mud to see if we could get low uh far enough down to find that nut and that's how deep was the mud the bottom of the um the river is 50 feet 52, and uh by the time i by the time i found the nut it was another 20 22 feet below that geez.
2: and so how are so we, you able and to, we uh yeah how were you able to find yeah, that um, <clears throat> in
4: the
3: mud? we went over to uh, another dive locker and they had a device that we affectionately call a ditch witch it's uh, uh an air operated vacuum and basically it's a mm-hmm. long pipe with a valve on one end of it and as you open up that valve and, and and air travel up the the pipe it uh um it creates a huge amount of suction and it will basically suck anything into the pipe mm-hmm. and discharge it at the far end of the pipe and so uh, I, I was chosen to to see if i could locate the nut so went down to the bottom. There was two other divers in the water helping me. And, uh, I turned the ditch witch on and in short o- order, I started making, creating a tunnel that was about three feet in diameter. And I was just going down like an elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess by the time I found the nut, I was some 20, 22 feet, uh, in the mud. And, uh, mm-hmm. once I hit something really solid, I uh, reached down and I didn't want to get hurt by the ditch, which is suction, so I turned that off. And when I turned that off, I reached inside the nut and I could tell I, I, I had the nut. And when I called up um, on the communications line, um, the tunnel collapsed. And oh, uh, so I would have been at 20, 22 feet below the mud and another 50 feet of water on top of me. My God. <laughs> and,
1: and you didn't die. <laughs>
2: So
3: uh, how long were you stuck well, there? Go ahead. Well, I was stuck way, way too long. So the table <laughs> and schedule for uh, 70 foot is only 50 minutes. You can stay there for 50 minutes without decompressing. Yeah. And I would have been there um, really close to three hours, maybe maybe a little bit oh. more than three hours. So um, when the tunnel collapsed, it, it kind of cemented me in this uh, very dense mud and it was like concrete. I couldn't move at all. Uh, I wasn't hurt. I wasn't being crushed. Uh, I just was frozen in mud, if you will. And um, did you? Yeah, panic? I was quite happy in my muddy little hole. No, <laughs> so- <laughs> not really, because I had plenty of I had plenty of air, and uh, I wasn't hurt, and I wasn't being crushed. I just couldn't move. Uh, but then, when uh, the mass driver that I worked for at the time, his name was Gary, when uh, he came on the um, communications and he told me to turn the ditch switch back on i told him that i couldn't reach it because i couldn't move yeah. and uh it would take me uh oh i guess it would have taken me close to three hours to move my hand far enough over to finally turn on the ditch which
2: and they were probably panicking a bit on uh, the surface to see find a way to get you out right
3: Oh, absolutely. I'm sure they uh, they called every uh, available dive locker in the area to come up with a plan. And their plan was actually pretty good. They were going to take uh, um, the ship, which was a cruiser, and they were going to take its fire main water pressure and basically a nozzle down to the bottom, and two or three divers were going to uh, try to blow the mud out that 20-foot hmm. uh, to get to me on time. Uh, okay. But by the time they got ready to do that, I was ready to... Uh, um, open up their suction valve on uh, ditch, Witch, and so they didn't need to.
1: Oh, so you were able to finally move.
3: You started, I I, I just started, I started moving my one finger and I, once I got some movement with one finger, I started two fingers and three fingers and four fingers until, until I was like waving with, with my hand. And then I just kept moving it and moving it and moving it over Hmm. the course of a few hours. And I finally was able to get over to the, um, the valve. God.
2: and so you needed to decompress
3: after that right well it, you, you're past decompressing at that point so it's called omitted decompressing which which basically means that you've already omitted or you did not decompress so uh i would have i think i had to spend at least um, six or seven hours in a recompression chamber to uh, wow. um to fix that
1: Hmm. Where was that, the recompression chamber?
3: uh, There were several of them in in Charleston. Uh, uh, Almost every large major diving command will have a recompression chamber.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Rick, the other story we want to mention is uh, one of the most incredible diving tales I've ever heard. You actually went diving in Alaska in the winter in 60 below zero weather. Tell us about that and how you did it and why you did it.
3: <laughs> well, why I did it should come first. Uh, um, I was uh, stationed with a Marine Corps uh, force reconnaissance team over in uh, uh, North Carolina, and I was the first Navy mass driver to get stationed with the Marines. And the commandant of the Marine Corps had a mission for us that was on the top end of Norway, and he asked if we... Mm. Uh, had the ability to dive with the Norwegians. And at the time, I told him that that the Marines hadn't been trained in cold water. We would need some specialized equipment, but I could train them. But most importantly, we would need to get acclimated uh, to cold weather. So he said, where do you want to go? I said, we'll go to Alaska. And uh, (laughs) we picked Seward, Alaska. There's a huge bay there, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it's very very warm usually. Uh, but this was like the coldest winter in hundred years, I think. And uh, when we got there, there was 10 foot, 10 foot snow banks. And uh, it was minus 60 air temperature. And the water temperature was 28. Jeez. And so it was very uh, difficult. Um, we had a, a huge uh, learning curve to, uh, um, be- because our equipment kept freezing up. So, uh, uh, but once we got through that, I remember one day that I think it was the first day that we dove. We, were, uh, we put two guys in the water in the uh, marina, which they had to come in and break up all the ice. And, and we were just freezing. And when we got them out of the water, I saw a little coffee shop. And I said, Come on, coffee's on me. Let's go in there. And everybody inside the coffee shop was, of course, looking at us. I mean, <laughs> imagine eight men walking into a coffee shop all dressed in black. And, uh, and so they all turned around and looked at me and i was the first one to speak up i was freezing to death and um and i said if if you if, if being a man in alaska means that you have to endure weather like this then i'll be the first one to confess that i have no way i'm am I a man and they all laughed <laughs> at us and they said yeah just thinking the same about you guys we only go outside for 15 minutes at a time you guys have been out there for over two hours and so we all had a good laugh about it but uh we had a lot of fun in in, in, in Alaska, and in having that fun, it got us acclimated to cold weather. So that when we went to um, Norma- uh, Norway, we were prepared for the cold weather. Where other people were having finding it difficult on uh, dealing with it, we we had already got past that difficult phase, and and now mm. it was uh, it was pretty easy for us. When we got to Norway, it was only minus ten, so we thought it was kind of spring. So most of us <laughs> were running around without our jackets on. God. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, what kind of
1: wetsuits do you wear for that kind of water temperature? Dry, mean, it, dry suits. Oh, dry suits.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we, but, yeah, we're in dry suits. We're in dry suits. Uh, um, and underneath the dry suits, we're wearing all black poly uh, um, uh, garments under that. And then the okay. people that are – you don't really have to worry about the divers as much as you do the people that are on the surface uh, supporting them because – if we were, if the air temperature was minus 60 and the water temperature was 28, there's almost 90 degrees difference. And being that feels in the water. good. Now. In fact, my feels marine, good in the water. Right? Yeah, exactly. It feels like a, it feels like a sauna getting in, getting into 28 degrees. So <laughs> wow. the people yeah. topside. We have to worry about them more than we actually have to worry about the divers. So they all mm. wear exposure suits, which is, mm. which is like a dry suit, but it's a lightweight dry suit. But that way, if they fall in the water, um, then there's not a catastrophe.
1: God.
2: Okay. So one thing I noticed uh, in working with you and your story is that you've got an acute sense of intuition that you've used in situations to save your life and and warn others as well. But others don't always follow your instincts. I'm thinking about that time the sailors uh, in port in San Diego, after being at sea for weeks, uh, wanted to go to Tijuana for the night. And I think it was your commander who thought, well, nothing wrong with that. Sounds good. But you you didn't, you, you had a different impression. Tell us about that and what happened.
3: Um, well, first of all, on a Navy ship, the uh, commanding officer, the captain aboard that ship, he is in charge of the ship. Uh, as a command master chief, a command senior chief, my job is to be a voice for the crew and be sort of his right-hand man. So I support all the decisions that he makes. Mm-hmm. But – in saying that I can also give my opinion on anything and without any kind of repercussion, I can speak my mind basically. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and many, many years before I, I, I reached that point, um, a, an older, much older, wiser master diver, uh, once told me when I was a boy, said, if it doesn't feel right, it ain't right. <laughs> so I sort that of, advice. I sort of always, yeah, I sort of always use that in the back of my head and, and when I think that um, something's not going to happen or you're not going to get the right response uh, from from what you're going to do, then I remember that saying, and I remember it well. Um, and it's always it's always served me pretty well.
1: Yeah. So what happened?
3: I'm left hanging here. <laughs> well, in this, in this particular case, the, the, the captain didn't see a problem with uh, allowing the crew to go to Tijuana. And uh, uh-huh. so I supported his decision. We we allowed the crew to go. And uh, I was probably going back to the ship around midnight, close to midnight. And uh, the phone rang, and it was for the Kabanash chief. And I answered the phone, and uh, it was uh, a hospital down in Tijuana. And uh, one of my sailors was stabbed multiple times, and the other one Jeez. had a screwdriver sticking out of his head.
1: Oh, my God. So
3: uh, um, they were actually... They were actually injured so bad that we had to medically retire them. So, uh, um, yeah, they, they, their career was over that night.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, God, but so when you're in, when you had this intuition, it was mainly just that you disagreed with letting them go to Tijuana, right?
3: I just didn't. I just didn't have a, a, a good. I just didn't have a good feeling about it. Uh-huh. You know, okay. It seems. It seems to me in the thirty years that I've uh, um, that I served in the military. Um, leaders in, in in the older days uh, had no problem telling people that no, they had no problem saying the word mm-hmm. no. Whereas leaders nowadays have softened to the point where they don't want to be a bad guy, so they're they're apprehensive, if you will, about That's saying no say. or you can't <clears throat> do something because they don't want to be looked at as uh, um, as as a bad person. Yeah, uh, really. I never had a problem saying no. <laughs>
2: yeah. mm. But it wasn't that you were afraid yourself of Tijuana. I mean, you were in many different uh, ports in the world that uh, are quite dangerous, right? Over your years?
3: That's correct. <laughs> That's but I've been so to, I, I have also been to Tijuana uh, multiple times as well.
2: Yeah, I okay. Didn't
3: see, uh, um, I just did not see uh, a benefit that outweighed the risk. The risk was... Yeah higher than the benefits so uh, um yeah. you know san diego is, is a beautiful place and we only had one night there and the next day we were leaving for uh, panama so uh, yeah hmm. i wanted the crew to get back early and and be well rested
4: hmm.
1: okay so they go they went they flew to tijuana and airlifted
3: these guys out or what no, we would have sent an ambulance down and, and got them, picked them up from the Tijuana uh, mm-hmm. hospital and brought them back to uh, um, the hospital in San Diego, which is Balboa. And mm-hmm. then after their their injuries were stable, uh, we released them from military service. Hmm.
4: Uh-huh.
2: So, so another time you were on leave and went diving in the Pacific, about 300 miles off the coast of Mexico, uh, there's some a few islands out there and uh this is your first time out there and you sense trouble the night before your first dive is that that i guess it was that same sense of intuition could you t- uh talk about uh, how you felt and what happened the next day
3: well I, I, my hobby or passion is spearfishing and that's what actually led me to being a navy diver and um so uh this particular year I got an invitation to go spear fishing off of Mexico for um large tuna. And uh you know, I had been a diver my whole life, I've been a spear fisherman since I was nine years old, so I, I was quite comfortable in my diving ability and, and, and my ability to be in the ocean and everything. But I had never been to these islands, and uh, probably the night before we went out there, we all had uh, a dinner, and they started speaking about the, the sharks and the, the quantity of sharks that uh, had been out there. Now, I dove with sharks before, but not in the quantities they were talking about, and I certainly never dove with uh, any mature tiger sharks, which can be over 16 feet long. God. Uh and so I was maybe getting a little bit nervous or apprehensive as a good uh, that maybe on this particular occasion I bit off a little bit more than I chew, uh, and the reason why is I, I had never been blue water spearfishing before, and mm-hmm. yet I was on this um, boat with some world class spear fishermen, and uh, and I was on my way to go to do it and and give it a try, and so the mm-hmm. the very first day that uh, uh we were out there my partner was uh, um, an american champion and within 15-20 minutes he shot a big tuna over 200 pounds and it probably pulled him a half a mile away and i found Jeez. myself by myself
4: hmm.
3: and um i was hmm. I, I take orders really well anyway, obviously i was in the military so uh, one of the orders that they gave me is don't swim alone by yourself if uh Jeez. if your partner gets pulled away from you um start swimming to another another team that's in the water or swim back to the boat. Well, the boat was further than yet the, the next team. The next team was about 300 yards away, so I started swimming towards them. It was beautiful, glass, calm water, crystal, crystal clear, just blue, blue, and more blue. And um, I was swimming towards them, and I didn't feel comfortable. I looked out in front of me. There was nothing but blue water. I looked to my right, looked to my left, nothing but blue water, but something was wrong. It was that if the hair on the back of my neck was just standing up. And uh, at that moment, I looked behind me. Oh, God. And my float that I use for spearfishing is about 75 feet behind me. And it was probably one of the biggest sharks I've ever seen was on the surface, mm-hmm. right on under my float. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and you know, when you see a 16-foot animal in, in the ocean, it's one thing to see it on TV. But when you're in the ocean with it, you don't want to be there. And uh, <laughs> so I actually, I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. It's the first time I ever been in blue water and it's the first time I ever seen an adult tiger shark. And then it started swimming towards me. So I brought my fins down to show them how, show the shark, how big I was, but that didn't deter the shark. The sharks was slowly swimming towards me. And, uh, and then there was this argument in my brain on uh, the left side of my brain said, uh, um, said, uh, um, don't shoot it. And the right side of my brain said, shoot it. And this kept going back and forth and, and the shark was swimming t- towards me slowly, but it seemed like an eternity. And this, this, uh, argument, my brain kept, you know, one side was like, shoot it. The next, and the other side was like, don't shoot it, bump it. If you shoot it, everybody else is going to laugh at you and, and, uh, um, bump it, shoot it, bump it, shoot it, bump it, shoot it. And then as the shark got closer to me, it finally got so close that it was too close for me to shoot. So, um, at the last second, I grabbed my spear gun in the middle and way up by the, um, the pointy end. And I lifted that spear gun, which would weigh about 16 pounds out of the water. And as the shark opened its mouth and was coming in for a bite, I came straight down and not that I was aiming for it, but it went right into its right eye.
4: Wow. Um,
3: its mouth was big enough for me just to roll up in a ball and and, and fit into its mouth. It was that big. Mm. And, um, anyways, uh, um, the moment that that happened, the shark obviously wanted to get away from the pain and it spun on a dime. And in doing so it was so large that its tail lifted me out of the water up to my waist. And when I came crashing back into the water, the small boat that went out to get my, um, my dive partner and his tuna was there and my head came crashing down onto the side of the panga and they they all reached over the side and grabbed me and pulled me in the boat and uh, um the mexicans are very uh, superstitious and and they were screaming casa el tigre we need to go we need to go which is home of the tiger and Mm -hmm. um yeah they took me back to the boat i unloaded my spear gun and i went down below and hid in my cabin for about five hours you know, what that kind of
1: injury? The first time in my life that I experienced shock. Yeah. What kind of injury did you have to your head?
3: I just had a bump on the back of my head. Just, but, uh oh, okay. Uh, from the time I got in the boat for about five hours, I was in shock. But nobody <laughs> recognized the signs and symptoms of shock, so uh, um, they just sort of left me alone, which was not really the thing to do. <laughs> um, but there was a, a famous writer named. Car- Carlos was happened to be in that bay that we were in on another boat, and he came over that evening, and uh, the captain of the boat told him what happened, and uh, he said, he's probably in shock, and they came down to my cabin Uh with a a glass of vodka, and they coaxed me out and asked (laughs) me to tell the story, and I told the story to everybody.
1: Jeez. Hmm. Yeah. Um i really don't know what to say about that story i would probably have had a heart attack <laughs> but you so
2: but you went out the next day you i mean the reason you're there is not for the sharks but for the tuna right
3: that's correct so the, the, and, the, the, the next day you know there's an old chinese proverb proverb that says that if uh if you can survive a near-death experience then you will be um you will be granted a uh, uh, you know, a, a, an amazing life and amazing luck. And so the very next day, I shot a yellowfin tuna bigger than me, and then actually shot three night on that trip. So I had beginner's luck. And wow. I, I shot more tuna than anybody else on that trip after I got through my first day. Well,
2: now, are you snorkeling or scuba diving on when you're out there?
3: No, we're snorkeling. Well, you call it snorkeling; we call it free diving. So it's all free, di- free diving. Oh, okay. Right. Well, so so yeah. when
2: when a uh, you uh shoot a tuna spirit tuna and it takes off it's pulling you underwater and uh so you can be underwater for quite a while right no
3: that's not exactly what happens so uh, (laughs) um, you come up uh, to the top there's a, a, a a floatable line that goes from my spear gun back to the first float and there's there's Usually on big fish, there's multiple floats with lines between them, and so basically one of the floats will still be on the surface, and you just hang on to that one, and it pulls you around on the surface, like sort of like water skiing. And then uh, when the tuna gets tired, uh, it slows down, and then and then you recapture the tuna. Yeah, mm. well, we
2: want to get into more about these sharks. Uh, one other experience before the real experience uh, that you had uh, is you. You drove another time out there, and you were completely surrounded by sharks. Uh, and uh, tell us about that experience. That's That one sounds like it was a miracle that you got out of there.
3: So that one was, uh, in some ways, very much like what well, started very much like the, um, the tiger shark incident. Um, I was with another diver, and that diver had shot a tuna and and was pulled away. And the moment he it was pulled away, I was like, uh-oh, I've been in this position before. I better start <laughs> swimming. And <laughs> I could see the, um, the, the mother boat was uh, only a few hundred yards away, so I'm going to start swimming towards the mother boat and get out of the water if I'm by myself. And, um, you know, when you have a partner and multiple sharks show up, they don't even try <coughs> because there's two of you. Uh, and you mm. can protect yourself from, a, you know, two people can actually protect themselves from at least a dozen sharks because you're mm. watching each other's back. But when there's only one person, you can't really do that. So what you try to do is ignore them. And uh, um, so I was swimming, and then two sharks showed up, and now I'm swimming with a little bit more of what I call a purpose, a little harder to get to my destination. And those two sharks turned into four sharks and and then rapidly turned into eight sharks and rapidly turned into probably more than 16 or 20 sharks. And now – you. because there's so many sharks and you're by yourself, they see that they have the advantage. So um, because there are so many sharks, you have to stop swimming to protect yourself. So now you're, you're, you're remaining stationary in the water and they know that is a sign of weakness. And so they exploit it. And, uh, um, what sharks do, and these are whalers, which are, uh, um, throughout, uh, the Pacific and Indian ocean, um, and they're typically between eight and 11 or 12 foot long. And what they do is, is uh, when they want to taste you to see if you're a food is they bump you. And so their, their taste buds are in their nose. So they ram you with their nose to see Jeez. if you're something that they would like to put on the dinner bill. And, <laughs> um, at first I was pushing them away as best I could and I was screaming for the boat to come, but the boat, um, couldn't hear me. And, uh, um, and then you get to the point where you can't push them away anymore because they're they're within they're inside of three or four feet so it's really hard to push them away because your big gun's almost five feet long hmm. so uh, um, about that time I started to panic then the next thing I felt was rage and I just started swinging my my gun as hard as I could smashing as many as I could because I thought for sure um, I was going to get bit and then once, once the first one bites, then it's all over. Then yeah. it, you're just in a, a frenzy of sharks, and, uh, <laughs> and it would just Gosh. tear you to pieces. Yeah. Um, so sharks were ramming me from the back and on the sides, my thighs and my front, and uh, and I was just swinging the uh, screw gun as wildly as I could. And about that moment, the, panga, uh, the small boat pulled up and pulled me out of the water. But they said God. that when they got me out of the water, there was actually shark tails slipping out of the water, and, and it looked as if uh there was a bite and uh and they were tearing me to pieces but uh luckily mm. none of them bit me and i i survived it that was a good did any
1: cool. of these shark confrontations discourage you obviously they didn't discourage you from from free diving <laughs> I mean, well
3: they you... discouraged me for that for the rest of that day that's for sure <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, uh, one remember. day you know, yeah. yeah i didn't get uh, back i didn't get back in that day or the first day but uh Uh, You know, after a while, you you get used to it, and uh, um, yeah. And I've always gone back to spearfishing, so I've been spearfishing Ah, now for over 50 years.
2: And you, you told another uh, diver, uh, free diver, that you were you were training, that uh, he he became somewhat concerned about uh, the sharks. You you told him the chance of getting hit uh, bit by a shark are about the chance Mm -hmm. of uh, getting struck by lightning.
3: Well, it's even twenty times better than that. So, uh, um, I had a friend that uh, <laughs> dives with me here in Australia, and four years ago, he asked me how I dealt with diving around sharks. And I said, "Well, I haven't been hit by lightning yet. In fact, you can get hit by twenty lightning bolts before uh, before you get bit by one shark." And he goes, "Really?" Wow. And I said, "Well, the chance of getting hit by lightning are five hundred five hundred thousand to one, and the chance of getting bitten by a single shark is eleven and a half million to one." So. Yeah, about twenty times, and so yeah. we had a we had a good laugh about it. But uh, um, but later that day, uh, um, a shark bit his leg off.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, so, uh, you, you,
2: you were able to save his life using uh, some of the the medical experience that you had gained in the navy, uh, or uh, using uh, the uh, dive belt as a tourniquet.
3: That's correct. So, in the military, especially the last um, oh thirty years since the early nineties, we. We do a lot of medical training, but we specifically, we do a lot of medical training in regards to uh, uh, IEDs, improved, improved explosive device injuries, which is an explosion on the ground, and so there's a lot of lower limb um, casualties, mm-hmm. and uh, we practice relentlessly on uh, what to do in, in case of an IED attack and uh, in casualties, so I was well aware of what to do, um, and um, yeah, he's. uh he survived. He he did lose his leg, but he survived, and uh, he's got four children right now in a very successful business.
1: Yeah. Does he still
3: dive? <laughs> uh, not very often.
1: Uh, but right. he did get oh.
3: back. He did get back in. He did get back in the water that year.
2: Wow. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Okay. Let's uh, move ahead to uh, the present or the near present. Your book begins about one year ago with a terrifying story uh when you're free diving on the great barrier reef uh can you tell us what happened
1: uh, you asked so casually <laughs> well,
3: we went, I, I, I went down to dive i went down to dive with a friend of mine that's about an hour and a half south of me and i don't know the area very well so i i went with him in his boat he has a small boat and we left lucinda on boat harbor and we went out to britomark reef and uh we started on the south side of the reef, which was very dirty, and we started moving north. And as we moved north, the water got clearer and clearer and clearer. So we finally reached the north side of the, uh, uh, the reef. We had plenty of fish, and we jumped in the water, and uh, the first thing we saw was two very large bull sharks, which is not unusual. Um, you know, we sort of look at their demeanor, and they were moving slow. It was winter time. They're not very aggressive here in the winter time, and they just swam away. We didn't think anything about it. A few minutes later, a, a whale shark swam up to me, and they're they're very rare here. And uh, I gave it a little pat on its nose and everything. And when we got in the boat, we were laughing about that. And I asked him, I asked my friend Pete if he had got it on GoPro. And then he said, come on, one more spot. And I was like, oh, come on, Pete. It's, it's getting late in the day. The weather's getting bad. We're in a small boat. Uh, you know, we got plenty of fish. And he said, no, one more spot. It's just up here a couple hundred yards. So um, we, we went up there and we anchored. And uh, the water was crystal, crystal clear, like diving in vodka. And um, anyways, uh, we swam up just up in front of the boat. And uh, there was a little reef right below us um, that was surrounded by white sand. And the reef resembled a coffee can, so the bottom was about huh. seventy five feet deep. but the top of the what i 'm going to call the coffee can was only about thirty six feet and um so i made a um got ready to dive and I made my dive, and I was laying on the top of the coffee can reef and um, unbeknownst to me um I made a noise, and a shark heard that from. A couple hundred yards away, and came racing across the bottom. It looked like 100 miles an hour. I couldn't see it though, and uh, but yeah. my dive partner saw it uh, racing towards me. And uh, anyways, it, it, when it got to the the reef or the sides of the coffee can, it had to go come up uh, half the distance to the surface, and it and it came up like a Polaris missile, and then came right over the edge of the reef. And when he came over the edge of the reef and, and we were looking at each other, he was only about five or six feet away. And he would have been <laughs> three or four feet wide and 12 mm. feet long. And yeah, um, I... it, was, uh, um, it was quite clear that, that we were going to impact regardless. You know, he, he probably, in retrospect, didn't know I was a human being. And uh, he, but he was moving so fast that we were going to impact like, like somebody walking around the corner would bump into somebody. Regardless, mm-hmm. there there was going to be contact. And uh, this shark probably weighed 600 to 700 pounds, Jeez. and uh, so it hit me. And when it hit me, as sharks do, it took uh, an exploratory bite. And in his case, he took two bites. And um, from where your thigh at first. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't hurt, um, greatly. Um, and the moment it took its second bite and, uh, um, it just turned 180 degrees and it left the same direction. It came just as fast. And, um, Mm. then I could see how big it was. And, um, this voice in my head was sort of the same uh, voice as Forrest Gump. (laughs) It said, that thing just bit you. <laughs> and, then, oh, and then, and then, Forrest said, "That motherfucker just spit me." <laughs> and uh, about the time I said it, the second time, uh, I was enveloped in red blood. I couldn't mm-hmm. even see the reef. I couldn't see anything. I was in just a curtain of crimson red blood.
4: And uh, and then
3: all of a sudden I snapped out of it, and uh, um, you know, the smart side of my brain said. Rick, get out of the water as calmly as you can and go now. So I started swimming to the surface and my leg, leg was just dangling. It, the shark bit me from my knee to my buttocks. And, mm. um, and there was so much blood in the water that um, I couldn't see my fins or even my lower legs. That's how much blood. And I was mm. swimming to the surface as fast as I could. When I got to the surface, my, my friend pretty much grabbed me right there near the surface. And then, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know if the shark was going to come back and finish what he started. Um, and so I just climbed right into the boat using my arms, and I fell into a lounger in the back of the boat. Finally, my friend Pete got into the boat. And, uh, and of course, you know, he's never, he's never seen anything like that before. And uh, I just calmly said, three minutes, Pete. And he said, three minutes for what, Rick? And I said, yeah, three minutes t- saved my life. Take your weight belt off, strip the weights off, and get it up here on my thigh as fast And um, we did that, and I knew it wasn't tight enough. I mean, I've been practicing this thing for, I've been practicing to do this for almost 30 years, so
1: I knew mm. it wasn't
3: nowhere near as tight. I said, take my weight belt off, do the same thing, but get it tighter. And when he did it the second time, this, the weight belt snapped.
4: Yeah. And
3: uh and then so we only had the one ill fitting um weight belt around my leg and I knew it wasn't enough to stop me bleeding. And then uh he Are was you... asking me what to do and I was like, get us out of here. Said, yeah. Yeah. You were what, twenty miles from shore? Y- y- you're bleeding out we're you're farther tw- than that, actually. We're, we're, yeah, we were more than we were more like thirty miles from shore mm-hmm. and it would take us almost ninety minutes to get back. Yeah. Jeez. And I was bleeding out.
2: And your chances of survival at that point were slim so it really took some incredible coincidences for you to survive there's no doubt about that i mean the first was, one
3: yeah go there ahead was a, there was there was a couple of coincidences that that helped overall so i told him to get me uh get me out of there and uh he started moving the boat and within a couple minutes there was a much larger boat that was fishing with three individuals on board uh, the boat owner's name was Paul, and uh, he was about my age. And then there was a, a good friend of his in his boat, whose name was Ben, and he was a pediatric cardiologist. And uh, And then there was one. Uh, there was one other individual in the boat as well. So uh, when we got close, um, the doctor Ben uh, dove in the water and he saw my injury, and they transferred me from the small boat into the larger boat. But when they put me in the larger boat, um, they set me on my back. And the moment they did that, it was as if an elephant or a rhinoceros was standing on my chest and I couldn't breathe. And, Mm. um, and so I, I was screaming, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And so they cut my wetsuit off of me and it didn't do anything. I was screaming, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And, you know, in a in an effort to get away from the pain in my chest, I rolled over onto my right side. In the, the moment I rolled over onto my right side, the pain went away in my my chest, and then it dawned on me I was having a heart attack. Jeez. Oh, um, now, I kn- I know that I have a good heart, and so I knew that if I was having a heart attack, that it was because of loss of blood, and um, so. I was on my side and I rolled up into a ball and I brought my legs up um, tight to my chest because if my legs were, were, if I was in a fetal position, that would I knew that that would slow down my um, femoral artery and bleeding. Mm. And then I had, I closed my eyes and I had three good breaths and they felt really good. And then it dawned on me, that's what I have to do, focus on breathing. So for mm. 90 minutes, I just focused on breathing
4: Yeah.
3: when I got back to the boat ramp, I I made it all the way back to the boat ramp before, before passing out altogether. But, um, I made it back to the boat ramp and, um, yeah, I bled out entirely, which was, uh, 14 units of blood. Oh God. What did you die? Yes. Well, they said that when they, um, the EMTs and doctors and everybody, um, they had, they had time to get ready on shore. So the life was standing by helicopter was standing by. They, mm-hmm. they even had time to put up a tent, an emergency tent. So I wouldn't be in the sun. They told the firefighters, um, picked up the, the four biggest firefighters and said, you get him out of the boat, get him on the skirting, get him up here. EMTs, you're in charge of stopping the bleeding. There's two doctors. One, one doctor was in charge of getting blood into me. And the other job, uh, doctor's job was to paddle me. And, um, uh, that all went pretty fast. And, uh, this one doctor, Dr. Ann, she, uh, was the one that got the, um, needle in, into my arm, which was very difficult to do because I had no blood. So all my arteries were collapsed God, and, please. uh, they had me hooked up to a, a defibrillator, uh, and they were about ready to paddle me cause I was unresponsive, not breathing and dead for the most part. And, mm. but the moment the blood, hit my heart, it started my whole system. Wow. So uh, they said that I, I sat up, the moment that blood hit my heart, I sat up, and I said, get the fuck off my leg, you're hurting me. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of scared, I sort of scared everybody. They said I was like a possessed zombie. And, uh, so they, they knocked, at that point, they knocked me out, and um, they got me in the lifelight as quickly as they could. About that time, my wife, Angela, and my best friend, Mark, uh, um, showed up at the boat ramp. Uh, the police grabbed Angela. And, uh, oh, we lost them. John, did we lose them? I don't know. Oh. do No, the police grabbed Angela, but she somehow broke away and gave me a kiss goodbye.
2: Oh, you know, It's just hard for you to describe that situation, God. right?
3: I mean, it's, yeah. I
2: mean, she, Pete had told her that she w- you weren't going to make it, right?
3: Well, actually, she, she had it much, much, much worse than me. I mean, it's all I really had to do was focus on breathing and uh, don't die. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. she, Pete called her from the boat, and, uh, you know, we're always joking around. So she's like, when Pete said, hey, uh, Ange, rick has been bit by shark. It's really bad. And she, her first response is like, get out Pete. She thought she, he was joking and he's uh, he no, he, he's been there real bad. And she, and she didn't want the kids to hear. So she walked in the other room. She goes, I got to know right now. Hmm. And he said, no, he's not going to make it.
4: Yeah.
3: And then at the boat ramp, when she got to the boat ramp, and the two doctors was there said, no, he's not going to make it. Jeez. When she got to, finally got to the hospital. And um, when I was still in surgery, the, the doctor said the chances of him making it or swim to none.
2: So, yeah. So I really
3: uh, had it much much worse than I
2: did. Yeah, but at one point, so you went right into surgery, and then you had a second surgery. At one point, point, you you had multiple heart attacks, and at one point, you had a near death experience. Uh, was that that take place during during the surgery?
3: Well, the first uh, when I first they first um, brought me to the hospital of, of via life um, On the way to the hospital, I they ran out of fluids again, so they started just pumping in saline solution into me, and I had a, a massive um, heart attack on the on the, on the chopper. And so mm. they delivered me to the hospital as a code red blanket, which is uh, um, the worst of all codes. I've never even heard of it. I thought it was an Aus- Australian term, but it's not. It's a worldwide term, which basically means off the lifelike helicopter right into uh, um, the operating room. Jeez. And uh, many people were standing by to save my life. And uh, yeah, the the first surgery was that day, and they it was just to clamp everything off and save my life and stabilize mm-hmm. me. But uh, um, they were concerned that they gave me so much super blood, um, synthetic blood, that um, even after four or six units, it can become toxic. Well, they gave me 14 units. And <laughs> so they wanted to know if I was going to be brain dead or if I was going to have organ failure. And so after that initial surgery, they had me in a coma and they told Ang, to go home and get the kids so they can come back and say goodbye to their father. And, uh, and they, but the, the two main doctors wanted to know straight away if I was brain dead. So they woke me up while Ange wasn't there and they asked me all kinds of questions and I knew everything. Hmm. And, uh, and uh-huh. then they put me back into a coma and then, uh, um, and then, um, I was in a coma and then they had the, the big surgery and the big surgery, I think it lasted 12 or 14 hours and it was basically to put me back, put me back together. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was after, it was after that surgery, um that uh that I guess I experienced what you were talking about or you asked me about there so uh, I was in a I was in a coma and uh um I sort of woke up I, I guess the right way for me to explain it is my mind woke up but my body didn't wake up and um you know when I first woke up um I was I was like in pitch dark and I'm like, and I was like, what's going on here? It's kind of like having one of those weird dreams where you wake up it, but you, you, you don't know where you're at. And yeah. that's exactly the way I felt, except for it was dark. And I was like, where am I? Am, I, am and I, you know, I knew what happened to me. It's not like I didn't know that a shark bit me. And I was like, am I dead? And, and I was like, no, you can't be dead. Cause I can feel my, I can feel my heartbeat and I can feel my chest going up and down. Like, am I underwater? And I was like, and then I felt, no, I, I can feel gravity. I'm not underwater still, and so I, it was like, I was like moving around, like I, in my book, I describe it as moving around in a in a pitch dark house and checking all of the rooms in the house, and not getting any clues and just being in total darkness and not knowing anything. And mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't scared. I wasn't anxious I wasn't nervous I was warm it was I was warm and I was very comfortable and I felt safe it was kind of like being like in a womb before birth you know it was, it was just I was, I was in a happy place but I just didn't know where I was at and then um, and then these little lights started showing up you know people say oh did you see a bright light did you see a tunnel you know did you have an outer body experience well, I didn't have any of that Um, I was just in darkness wondering where I was at. And then these lights showed up and they weren't really bright. They were only about as bright as a nightlight. And Mm. there was several of them around me. And I, I noticed them when they were further away. And as they got closer to me, those lights got brighter and brighter. And, uh, then I'm like, it almost wanted to, to draw me, towards them, but they came to me, the, the lights, and then, so they were kind of standing on my, the lights were kind of on my left side, and they were on my right side as well, and then, and then one of them said, go home, Hmm. in a male voice, and then the next one said, go home, Rick,
4: Hmm.
3: Huh. <laughs> do, you, and, do you have uh, any idea who these spirits were, or?
1: what they were. Well,
3: I mean, you know, I, I truly believe that they were angels,
4: mm-hmm. you know, and,
3: uh, um, I, I think I know, who, you know, I recognized one of the voices and I, I wrote about in my book that I was really close to a sailor that, and he was a diver and, um, he died. And, and I, I think one of the voices was his, mm, but yeah. the um, moment I heard go home, Rick, um, the moment I heard that, I heard an alarm go off, and then I heard a woman's voice, and this woman's voice was nobody that I knew, and I heard her sort of complaining, "This damn, um, um, this damn heart rate monitor is set at 40 beats per minute, and uh, he keeps holding his breath." And then, <laughs> but I was still in darkness when that, hmm. when I could hear that. And then I felt somebody touch my arm, and uh, um, and then she spoke, and and I could tell that that was my wife. Hmm. And she told the nurse, "He's been a diver his whole life. He's been holding his breath his whole life." And uh, and then she she leaned co- uh, close to me, and she said, "Rick, just breathe."
2: Wow. And that became the name and of the your book. I,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the moment I breathed, at the moment I started breathing, um, I woke up, and then wow. I could see it. I was in the
1: ICU. Yeah,
4: well.
1: And this was after, how long after the surgery, that 14 hours of surgery? Any idea?
3: Um, it would have been that night. Uh, oh, from was that, that? From, the, oh, from yeah. the main surgery. Yeah, not not the night that they saved my life. The main right. surgery, I think, um, was on
2: Tuesday. Mm. Not only did they save your life, but amazingly, they saved your leg. Yeah. You,
3: and yes. Um, so when I so right after I woke up, and I was getting my bearings, and my wife was there, you know, everything was still in the fog because I was coming out of a coma. Mm. I guess my wife saw me reaching down to see if I had a leg, and I could hear her say, "You still have your leg."
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow.
3: Yeah, that was a pretty
2: special moment. Tell us a bit about your recovery uh, uh, over the, uh, about about one year. Tell them when this happened, October. It happened in October of 2020. 2020. 11 months ago. Wow.
3: Yeah, Yeah, it occurred 11 months ago. So uh, um, I was supposed to be in the hospital. They said I would be in the hospital between three and six months. And... uh, now that just wasn't going to happen and so <laughs> about the third week i was in the hospital the doctor came in and uh, and she says i want to see something and she helped me get my legs out of the bed and i and she sat me up and she said and she put her hands out in front of me and she goes give me your hands and i put my hands in her hands and she goes i just want to see stand up and i stood up wow and then uh, i think they had me on a walker for half a day and i ditched that and i said bring me a set of crutches and I was on the crutches for maybe two days max. And I was like, I had enough of that. And, and they're <laughs> like, you want to go home? I said, yeah, I want to go home. <laughs> so I went home at uh-huh. three and a half weeks. Oh. Jeez. And, um, so one of the things that when they were saving my life, they clamped off my perineal nerve, which deadened my foot, my left mm. foot. And, uh, so, uh, um, I couldn't walk properly. The moment I would pick my leg up, my foot would just drop down and would drag. Oh. And, um, uh, So we waited to see if the nerve was going to come back, and then uh, it didn't come back. And so four months ago, I had uh, um, surgery on my foot, and they disconnected some tendons and muscles from my arch and reconnected them to the top of my foot so I can actually pick my foot up now, up and down, and walking. I'm getting better at walking.
2: You have have a bit of a limp uh, still? Yes.
3: Yeah, I think I'll probably have a limp for the rest of my life, but, you know, it's okay. I mean, I have my leg. I have my yeah. life. Yeah, really. I mean,
2: God. Yeah, that's an amazing story. So, that's, Rick, the chances of… This needs to be a movie. <laughs> yeah, the chances of my meeting you and helping you with your book were uh, infinitesim- in. Infinitesimal. (laughs) Infinitesimal. You're on the other side of the world. You're 14 hours ahead of Florida time. We had never met. Our backgrounds are very different. Yet, we discovered the craziest of synchronicities (laughs) that connected us. Uh, All the sugarloaf. I I happened to mention uh, in an email something about uh, a a trip we had taken, something about Sugarloaf Key, and you wrote back, I had no idea you even had ever heard of Sugarloaf Key. And then it turns out uh, we, we had been going to Sugarloaf Key for years. Uh, uh, our agent had a house there, and he always invited us to stay there anytime we wanted to, so we took advantage of that. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I, I mentioned to Rick that well we were uh, we stayed at a place in f- Flying Flying Fish Fish Lane, Lane and Rick just, (laughs) what was
3: your reaction, Rick? I I couldn't believe it. I mean, I I grew up in Florida, and uh, I don't know, and maybe in the mid-'90s, I bought a lot on uh, um, uh, Flying Fish Lane in Sugarloaf Key, and uh, I had it for several years, and then there was a building moratorium, and then we come to find out that uh, Rob and Trish were um, staying at the house right next door to my lot. <laughs> so I mean, what is exactly that.
2: Yeah, for years that that lot was empty. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. Uh, Trish reminded me that, because, and I knew there was some reason that was uh, there. There was a moratorium that there was no building there, and then something happened. Then they they built a house, and Al was a little disappointed <coughs> about that house being. Well, built. this is this yeah. is a.
3: This is the perfect example how, you know, uh, a a working class little guy gets screwed. And Mm -hmm. so I actually bought that lot many years ago as like sort of a retirement lot to build my Mm -hmm. retirement uh, house. Mm
4: -hmm. And
3: a few years after I bought it, um, I got a letter from the county that said that there was a building moratorium and they were not going to ever allow any more building on Sugarloaf Key. And I could accept Oh. Um, what I bought it for, basically, and I owned it for I don't know four or five years, but they paid me, you know, the bare minimum, not market value for the lot. And I got a lawyer, mm-hmm. and they said there's just nothing you can do, and uh, and then and then several years later, after I, I turned it back over to the county, uh, I was down there on uh, doing an operation with the Marine Corps, and I said to my guys, you guys want to see where I was going to retire because we happened to be up <laughs> on Sugarloaf Key. And I pulled in that neighborhood there's a mansion on, on the lot that I was told that I could never uh, uh, build on.
4: Yeah.
3: And uh, um, I got a lawyer then to sue the county to find out what happened. And uh, a rich guy came in and said, why is there a moratorium? And they said, well, the uh, septic septic sewer and water system is not large enough. He goes, I'll do- uh, I'll donate $75,000 because of uh, uh, Monroe County's uh, uh, septic sewer system. And if you let me buy that lot. And so they did. God, typical mm-hmm. no. oh, well, okay. well, example of rich people getting over on uh, yeah. on, on blue collar.
2: Yeah, and those oh, people my. are very noisy, by the way. Who yeah, they are.
3: To-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Remember <laughs> that. Yeah. Okay, so that is one of the most powerful synchronicities I've ever yeah, heard. <laughs> yeah,
2: it was pretty incredible <laughs> that, that that connection occurred. So, one <laughs> final question, Rick: Have you been back in the water free diving?
3: I was back in the water on Friday, as a matter of fact, just two days ago,
4: Wow! and
3: I uh, had a great day. It was be- absolutely beautiful. The water was clear. The ocean was calm. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I saw six big bull sharks, and each time I saw one, it scared the shit out of me, but uh, <laughs> they left me alone, and I left them alone, and I, I had a pretty good day.
1: Yeah. Well, you're, you're
3: amazing. <laughs>
2: the story is so incredible. How, how long can you hold your breath for?
3: I got to ask you that. <laughs> Not as long as my wife. Uh, My wife can hold her breath longer. Really? uh, You know, although our sport, yeah, although our sport does have us holding its its, its, your breath, um, it's not like we do it for a long period of time. Uh, Our average dive, um, doing what we want to do, is only about a minute and a half, two minutes. Mm -hmm. So we never really, or I never really practice to see. Oh my, all right, I want to see how long I can hold my breath. But I'm sure it's I'm sure it's probably somewhere in between the three and four minute mark. But my wife yeah. Angela can hold her breath about four and a half minutes.
2: I remember that one story you wrote about where the guy I think this was uh, in very cold weather where the guy dropped uh, some instrument, uh, important instrument, off a dock and it went down like ninety feet. Uh, and uh, you had already were were ready to leave and your everything was packed up, but. Tell us the story. You 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 went down there 90 feet. How did you do that?
3: <laughs> well, it was uh, we were we were leaving Norway, and uh, a, a young officer dropped an encrypted radio off of a Marine Corps rack boat, which is a riverine type uh, craft. And uh, the radio that he that he dropped into the water was encrypted, which is is very very important. It's top secret and uh cost about forty thousand dollars and i asked the boat driver how deep is it underneath your boat and he said 96 feet and uh i asked my because we had already shipped out all of our diving equipment i asked any of the guys if any of the guys had any diving equipment and one of them had a mask and i had my exposure suit not a dry suit but the exposure suit which is like a lightweight dry suit so we had uh uh, i had them go get a couple ammo cans and fill them up with rocks and take a piece of line and uh I got in the water with an exposure suit on and just a mask, no fins. And uh, I told them that when I nod to let go of the ammo cans, and I would hold on to the ammo cans, and uh, and yeah, I went down 96 feet, picked up the radio, and came back up. <laughs>
2: but you you uh, you described it as uh, you you kind of liked it down there though for <laughs> a few for a few seconds at least, right? <laughs>
3: I, I did like it down there only because there was uh, a, a young Marine major on the surface that was screaming at me to get out of the water. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, at 96 feet on the bottom, when you're there by yourself, it's nice and quiet. <laughs> the It was uh, nice. And I knew that as soon as I returned, that guy would be screaming at me again. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I remember he told me to get out of the water and I, and I was like, why? And he said, cause what you're about to do is unsafe. And I was like, how do you know it's unsafe? And he goes, Marine, I'm giving you an order right now. Get out of the water. And I just looked at him and laughed and said, I'm not a Marine. And <laughs> picked
2: it up. Yeah. Yeah, that is quite an experience you had, because you were with the Marines for four years, but you're, you're a Navy guy, but you're because of your diving ex- uh, expertise, you worked with the Marines. So you, know, funny. But you were with them, but not of them. <laughs>
3: Right, 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 so I had a uh, um I had a team of uh, marine corps um force reconnaissance divers uh combatants swimmers like seals, mm-hmm. and uh we went around the world and we'd actually did uh, dive jobs around the world uh, um, mm. and yeah it was it was good it was good to be stationed with them and see what they do as well, yeah.
2: so Rick, there is so many more stories you have in your I book. Could listen
3: to this all night you
2: yeah, know I mean, there's he three got... hours, please. <laughs> So uh, you know, uh, really, everybody listening, that uh, get Rick's book when this comes out. We're gonna uh, when the book is out, we're gonna replay this uh, episode because it's it's good and uh, his book is uh, fascinating. And we just touched on some of the things. There's a lot more stories. (laughs) Thank you, Rick, for coming.
1: It was great
3: speaking with you. Oh, no worries, no worries. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk, and uh, um, I had a good time. We yeah, did, too. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> okay, take
3: care, Rick. Have a good All Monday. Right, bye-bye. Bye, and now. send us the bye-bye.
1: headlines. Bye-bye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com. For the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at TheMysticCast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com And until next week, thank you for listening, and stay mystical.